0: Welcome to Empathetic Machines, where we discuss the sometime collision and sometimes marriage of tech with ethics. Today we're going to try something a little bit different. We're going to comment on some important current events. But first, this.
1: Empathetic Machines is happy to partner with Black Girls Code um, based on their vision to increase the number of women of color in the digital space by empowering girls ages 7 to 17 to become innovators in STEM fields, leaders in their communities, and builders of their own futures through exposure to computer science and technology, and to train 1 million girls by 2040. We look forward to working alongside them, check them out, out at www.blackgirlscode.com.
0: Today we're going to have a discussion about the big event in Washington, D.C. that occurred this week.
2: The subcommittee will come to order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare recess at any time. We welcome everyone to today's hearing on online platforms and market power, part six, examining the dominance of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google.
0: So that's the meeting we're going to discuss today. But before I cut off Chairman Cicilline, let's listen a bit further.
2: Before we begin, I'd like to remind members that we have established an email address and distribution list dedicated to circulating exhibits, motions, or other written materials that members might want to offer as part of our hearing today. If you'd like to submit materials, please send them to the email address that has been previously distributed to your offices, and we will circulate the materials to members and staff as quickly as we can. I would also remind all members that guidance from the Office of the Attending Physician states that face coverings are required for all meetings in an enclosed space, such as committee hearings. I expect all members on both sides of the aisle to wear a mask, except when you are speaking. I now recognize myself for an opening statement. More than a year ago, this subcommittee launched an investigation into digital markets. Our two objectives have been to document competition problems in the digital economy and to evaluate whether the current antitrust framework is able to properly address them.
0: That's how five hours of testimony began. We'll try to get our comments in in less than an hour, though. Christine, are you here? How are you?
1: I am here, and I wanted to to say thank you for having us all here. This is a great opportunity for us to dive in a little bit underneath what happened and how we look at why this was so important. All right, let's get started. I, th- I think we have to welcome everybody.
0: Sorry, I forgot my manners.
1: So the first thing I wanted to do was
3: first welcome Sharla Straisner. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks, Christine.
0: Here at Empathetic Machines, we're looking forward to two of Sharla's upcoming projects, one on co-creation and another on the role of millennials in the digital workforce. Welcome also to Naoshi Yamauchi, whose Career Rocket podcast just completed its 10th episode. Hello. Cool. And Sue Hallin, a frequent commenter on technology and also issues of business and, and the law.
4: Hey, thanks for having us.
0: Glad you're here. Now, where should we start with Alphabet, Facebook, Apple? and
1: These are, in fact, beloved brands. Morning Consult just released their most beloved brands. Google shows up at number two. Amazon shows up at number four. YouTube, another Google brand shows up at number 10, PayPal at number 28. These are huge brands. Overall, these guys saw less pandemic downside and more pandemic upside in terms of net value and net community impact. And even, dare I say it, double the net trust. The brand love for these tech brands increased tremendously. Things like Zoom, and, which is a Microsoft product, also showed up in some of the most favorable brands. What does this mean for us as we start to consider whether these guys have too much power in terms of some of the acquisitions and why is this really relevant? So you look at at things like the 2006 acquisition of YouTube by Google, Zappos, which was acquired by Amazon, Skype, which went to Microsoft, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, Whole Foods, Instagram by Facebook, which many say is part of Zuckerberg's desire to say, if we can't beat you, we'll buy you. Do these tech companies pick winners and losers? Do they drive anti-competitive behavior? William, I'm going to turn it back to you because I think that we want to touch on why they, why they went to Washington.
0: So th- this meeting started with a really interesting quote. I'll use that to frame my discussion about the context. As gatekeepers to the digital economy, these platforms enjoy the power to pick winners and losers to shake down small businesses and enrich themselves while choking off competitors. I wish I had said that because terms like shakedown and choking off should be a part of our political discourse, in my opinion, but it was actually the committee's chairman. The chairman went on to say our founders would not bow down before a king, nor should we bow down before the emperors of the online economy. Wow. What's the context? Well, Silicon Valley and these firms have added trillions of dollars of value in the last 10 to 15 years with really no Washington engagement or oversight. There's a lot of sound and fury about privacy and data protection in the U.S., but the action is actually occurring outside of the U.S. or in our states. So this is another subtext. Uh, Tech is not monolithic. It is true that there is inter-tech company fighting. A number of firms are complaining about Apple's 30% tariff on doing business uh, through the App Store. With that context, what what happened? What's the process? Well, the 15 members of the antitrust panel, in Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg, And Sundar Pichai, the political leaders in the room and and actually U.S. political leaders in general have a a pretty good history of not understanding tech, not knowing how to talk about it this time around. The panel members were much more prepared. They had millions of documents prepared, had conducted many interviews, like hundreds of interviews. And they had in their possession a number of the messages issued directly by these tech moguls. The format allowed each member of the committee five minutes, although that uh, certainly stretched a bit. But it basically led to a very surface conversation. There's not enough time to get into details of tech, new business models, antitrust in a five-minute rapid-fire discussion. So this wasn't intended to be an exploration. Rather, it was a chance for a bit of political theater. Let's let's talk a bit about the political theater that was involved. Well, in the room, there were key players. I don't think it really is necessary to go through the key players, at least not the politicians, I would point out. I would point out someone named Linda Kahn. Linda Kahn, who was sitting behind the chairman of the, of the committee, wrote an article entitled The Amazon Antitrust Paradox, raising the question of, is there a new kind of antitrust threat? Antitrust has been concerned with customer satisfaction, managing pricing and profit power, but these firms are amassing, I guess we call it structural power, they're amassing customer data and it's given them huge chunks of the economy over which they have influence or even control. And rather than profit, they're perfectly happy just to take customer data. So her her critique of these firms and her critique of current antitrust has a fairly high profile. Now, there was a body of work written to counter her work, and this body of work sort of lauds the power of innovation and the fact that we, innovation is disruptive and it's important, It's worth noting that that counter set of arguments was uh, written by academics and lawyers funded by Amazon. So her presence in the room indicates a different approach and a different level of preparation by our politicians. So now let me get to what you asked me to talk about, Christine. You know I am. I'm a bit of a rambler. This is the kind of venue that emphasizes the nationalized state of our current political discourse. And in essence, what we saw is not surprising. It was the team discourse. I'm going to beat the other party. I'm going to create clips in which I can reinforce my ability to compete with the other party and generate clips for Facebook or other, you know, the other media. And so what that means is that the Democrats showed up with a discussion of antitrust. They seemed to be fairly prepared to have conversations on the substance. They weren't prepared enough to prevent the tech moguls from essentially gaslighting, obfuscating, sidestepping and avoiding. But that was their, that was their approach. The Republicans Sought to support their suspicions of bias in media, fake news, lack of patriotism and in, in social media. And this really defined the narrative. With that sort of as the background, I, I, I'd ask anyone any for comments on the context, otherwise, let's get to it. W- what happened? We've been talking about it for ten minutes now. what What actually happened?
4: So this is Sue. I think one of the things that happened that was interesting was, the Congress members were probably more prepared for this discussion than in any other time. So the last time Zuckerberg went up to Congress, it was a purely partisan beat down and didn't, there wasn't a lot of value there. But even though they all came in with, with, as you said, the dichotomy of which side they were going after, they also hit some pretty good questions and had really good examples pulled from you know like Amazon's diapers.com situation and looking for trying to get more and more competition out there. So I think I think it was a different viewpoint, even though there was a lot of that partisan, you know, I'm gonna talk about antitrust, you're gonna talk about bias. On top of that, there were actually some pretty decent questions that came through. Did it get us any further than we were before I don't think it did but that was my first take was it was a more intelligent conversation than in the past that doesn't mean it's near where it needs to be but it was better
0: would you mind um, say, saying a bit more about the diapers.com example for listeners that may not be aware
4: sure sure so and and this was actually brought up by who was it Mary Scanlon a democrat from Pennsylvania she actually said you know in In an email that she reviewed, one of Amazon's top execs said that they wanted to have an aggressive plan to win against diapers.com with their internal product set. And it was a plan that went to undercut that business by slashing the Amazon prices, therefore sending them out of business. What they ended up doing was they bought the company and then raised the prices again. So her point was you were all about customer and you keep telling us that you're all about customer savings and at the same time you're using your platform to destroy innovators and then gouge the price up again.
1: Right and and Sue this was about how big tech picks winners and losers inviting third parties onto the platform and then taking that data in order to produce their own products and one of the more interesting things Jeff Bezos, uh, he could not answer the question whether or not Amazon had engaged in anti-competitive behavior around taking third-party seller data, I'm sorry, in using third-party seller data in order to pursue Amazon-created brands or to prioritize and and quote-unquote play God. You know, if you look at the, the behavior overall, Walmart came out this morning asking television provider Vizio to change their remotes. And this is because the Vizio remotes contained an Amazon prime button that allowed you to sort of automatically get to Amazon content, which, uh, you know, and if you're looking solely at the retail head to head, then that's a, that then that's a challenge.
4: Exactly. Yeah. And interestingly to that point, One of the things that he said was, yeah, we have a policy against that, but I can't tell you we haven't done it. I mean, that's a a really interesting response, right? Do we Uh, believe
0: that? Do we we believe that the chief executive of the world's most valuable, at times the world's most valuable company, a fastidious steward of one of the most sophisticated supply chains in the world, running uh, a groundbreaking set of disruptive IT businesses, wasn't able to put his fingers on the details of that? Or no, I'm, was this... I'm sure. I'm Go sure ahead. he
4: could. I'm absolutely sure he could. I, I think it was his way of weaseling out of the question, right? Of, of saying, I won't tell you no, but I won't tell you yes. <laughs> if that doesn't say yes, I don't know what does.
1: One of the more interesting things is when House Leader Ciccolini reduced Pinchai to talking about kettlebells instead of having a conversation about the the true nature of advertising, that's that's really something. Can,
0: can I just go back to the, the, the notion of Bezos not answering? We have lauded for years the new leadership, the quality of these new leaders, how innovative they are, and the recognition of this new brand of driving change. And one of the observations I took from yesterday was m- maybe we're seeing that. Or maybe we're seeing what ends up happening ultimately when the, when, when leaders are f- sort of forced to come and give account of their practices. I felt like a number of superstar executives sort of fell to earth yesterday. <laughs> I don't know. Is that a fair view or no?
4: Yeah, it was really an interesting conversation. I I didn't feel like we moved the ball, but I, I think they've, they fell to earth to a point. Do I think they're going to change the way they're acting or... Some of the behaviors, I don't think so.
1: You know, Charlotte, Charlotte, do you think Mark Zuckerberg got enough of the questions he needed to on how Facebook, on, on how Facebook uses data?
3: I do. I think that he, uh, one thing that I noticed about Mark throughout the whole thing was he kept saying, I'm going to have to get back to you. He didn't come across, he kept deferring to other people. My big thing with this whole thing is acquisitions by nature. Are intended to improve the competitive advantage so did they do it ethically did they adhere to antitrust laws i mean there is data i mean emails from mark where he did make statements that he was snapping up and copying its rivals there are actual data that came from him so my concern is By default, that is what the acquisitions are intended to do. Did they cross the line? Are they using the data, to Mark's point, as far as using the the actual data that they acquire? And then there was also the question of using cookies. He explicitly said that he would not, yet he admitted, yes, he is. So, you know, what lines are being crossed?
0: Would you talk a bit more about the cookies, chocolate chip, Oreo? What do you mean?
3: Well, as part of their policy, they have told their users that they will not collect data using cookies. Yet, um, during the hearing, he admitted that they they were indeed collecting data, but he um, qualified it that they were using cookies to ensure that people could stay logged in, that they were ensuring that the security was being used, but whenever in their privacy policy, they explicitly said that they will not use cookies.
1: So one of the things about about the, these cookies, they, when, whenever you log into a separate property that's not Facebook using your Facebook login, they have access to all that data. All of that data comes along. So they're using that data too. Like to say that Facebook doesn't have... A, To a degree, Facebook has more personal data about us than Amazon and Google. I I don't know. Dispute that, guys. It's one of the reasons why I got off the platform. What they know about me scared me.
4: Absolutely. They do.
0: I'd like to go back to this discussion about why acquisitions occur. But the reason antitrust gets involved is they're also intended not to destroy or or badly inhibit competitiveness and and increase pricing power to an undue degree, I think. You can tell I'm not an attorney, Um, but I think the point about Instagram, for example, was they, they started to copy, they either were going to copy or buy their idea there was to destroy a competitor not to enhance competitiveness. And I think that's where I actually don't think there's really much of a question that there's a, that Zuckerberg put himself in peril here because he admitted that. Have I misunderstood that? Do you think?
5: I thought the I thought the CEO of Instagram made that statement somewhere uh, before acquisition happened. That if they weren't going to be acquired, then Mark's going to go into destroy mode and destroy them. So I think that,
4: from what I understand, I think that was that was what was said.
0: And it was based on a discussion he had with Zuckerberg, correct?
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when you when you look back at all the mergers and acquisitions that have happened, and the huge number of companies these guys have bought over time, it's always, it's always a combination of competitive advantage and getting rid of someone that you think is coming up to be a good competitor. I mean, it was interesting to hear Zuckerberg's reaction when asked about Instagram, when he said, there's no way we could have known it would be this big. Really? Okay. Okay. So I I think that there's an, it's always an interesting balance, but I think Sharla hit it when she talked about, you can do a merger for competitive advantage, but you've got to be careful with the ethics around what you're doing and how you're doing it. It's like in the old days, Microsoft used to buy up operating companies, operating system companies and squash them. He wouldn't do that now, but he did then. And it was, it was a big deal. So I think I think there's some tendencies in the tech world to do that, not just in the tech world, but a lot of in the tech world, of picking up these software companies and adding them to your product set, but also eliminating them from your competitive set. So let's let's
0: play the other side here for a minute. We We all know from our careers that tech is this brutal, fast arena for competition. And if we consider features or functions to be the basis of competition. Well, there's a body of research that shows those may or may not be that, may or may not be the case. But if we consider them to be the, the, the basis of competition, the barriers of entry are actually kind of low. It's pretty easy to, to duplicate them. If, if that's the way we have to think about competition, then the idea of building large platforms that, that accumulate in, uh, new functions or existing functions and the data that's required to drive value, th- that then makes real sense in this current competitive environment. That seems to me to be the, 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 the perspective that is being put forward. So for example, if Amazon is destroying lots of mom and pop businesses or local ways of thinking about grocery and delivery and these sorts of things, on the, on the one hand, on the other hand, prices aren't going up. In fact, they're, they tend to be going down in aggregate and perhaps not in particular categories and the customer experience is going is improving we're, we're happier with the seamless experience we're getting and so therefore to Christine's example we think it's kind of cool to see the little Amazon button because it helps us connect more easily with our Amazon experience what do we what do we think about that
4: now she you've been quiet
5: <laughs> I mean it's you know in my my background is in in the data and specifically around experimentation of running experiments to develop products or to build up the website or apps and you know, I hear all this and what's happening and it's not, it's not surprising and I don't think anybody on this this podcast thinks so either and the the way these companies have um, moved over the years because you know you're running these companies tell them they're very proud of running thousands and thousands of experiments all the time right To, to tweak features and tweak messages but what are they tweaking it for ultimately i mean when there's to sell more ads sell more products and you know that's that's their dna as a company and so when at a very high level, their behaviors, you know, even from the top, whether it's collecting all this data and then, you know, finding ways to either acquire them or crush them. And, you know, and, and somehow take, take some data that is questionable. You know, I, I just don't, I, you know, I, it's sad, but at the same time, it's, it's not, it's not surprising, at least just coming from my background of just what the dna behind these tech companies and so i i've been staying quiet just listening to a lot of people's uh, thoughts and i think i think you all have your points are they're very interesting and for me it's just i try to keep keep up with the hearings but at the same time it's what all the answers that we i've heard so far it's not that surprising coming from at least from my background with. Everything's about data, everything's about experimentation, and all those experiments are ultimately tied to making more money.
4: But I think that's, I think that's true because data is the power right now, right? In The barrier to entry for any programmer to create a new app or to create new, any function or to do additional things, the barrier to entry to that is very, very low, mm-hmm. but the access to data is not always easy. And that's where the power is right now. So I think you're spot on
3: your thoughts on the 2013 acquisition by Facebook of Avanado, which is the surveillance tools where they're using the analytics platform to monitor their competitors. And based on the data from that, they are making acquisitions. I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Tell us a bit more about that company. Didn't they simply acquire a tool that does better scanning and evaluation? Uh, Say more about why it's inappropriate.
3: Well, they actually paid teens to download it on their phone be able to spy on them and it's a vpn that gathers data about what people are actually doing on their phones and they supposedly used it to help them make decisions on acquisitions
0: wow so say more about how it fed acquisition um, decisions
3: they use this tool to monitor their competitors And it was actually what they used and um, including the 2014 acquisition of WhatsApp.
0: So the tool would allow them to see not only what they were doing on the Facebook properties, it allowed them to see what they were doing with other properties as well. And then they were able to build a sort of a a behavioral model that included key key opportunities for a platform and then to define the competitors of Facebook in that behavioral model. Is that a close approximation? How am I doing? Do I have that right? That's
3: how I understand
0: it. So Charlotte, previously in our conversation, you've talked about how acquisition and corporate development is a—it's an activity that's intended to increase the competitiveness, the positioning of the acquirer.
3: Well, that's just by nature of an acquisition. But is it ethical? And whenever they're using tools like this to go on and spy on people to see how they're using your phones and then using that tool to make business decisions about acquisitions such as the 2014 acquisition of WhatsApp. So my only question is if they're using data in a spyware type atmosphere, is that ethical?
0: Would you compare this to utilities? i mean, if if our local utility were to sell our usage information, for example, would that would that be ethical? Is that the right way to use that information?
3: That's actually a very good analogy.
0: there is a position out there that these platforms have sort of reached into a space of being utilities. Um, if they have these unfair insights into our behavior and we're trusting them with the data. Maybe they they need to be closer to the public trust. I don't know. It's it's an interesting thought. So let, let's move on. I, you know, um, Ginny Rometty, the former chief executive of IBM, coined or cribbed or borrowed the phrase that did as the new, the new natural resource yeah. when oil was the natural resource. Standard Oil had to be broken up because of its anti-competitive and other ugly practices. Sort of a case study in this space. And one of the challenges with Standard Oil that I think maybe we're hearing here is that the leadership of standard oil was simply focused on bending the structure of the economy to its own profit it seems like uh, now she particularly your comments about running experiments to drive revenue and profit leaves open the question and you know i'm going here right because this is what i always talk about on empathetic machines is there a paucity of ethics in that approach does it show an absence of, of ethical consideration and therefore requires regulation what do you think I'm reading from a script, by the way. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I mean, it's it's so hard. Just even with the examples that were pulled uh, during the hearing of you know uh, some uh, a small publisher who had been kicked off of Amazon and you know now they've been they can't list their books out books on Amazon anymore because maybe amazon felt that they are competing against their own products and you know that's just a small uh, publisher that you know, there's no way jeff bezos probably knew about that one particular one because right, the, just is he oversees so much of amazon and i think the same thing with experiments right is the data and the experiments is that you know these companies are running thousands and thousands of experiments and who's Overseeing the ethics behind what's being experimented. Oftentimes, it's an engineer that comes up with a random idea and just runs a tiny experiment, and right. or it could be a, a marketing person or a product person who's like, "Let's tweak this language a little bit." And yeah, there's there's guidelines that typically they have to follow, but when you're moving so quickly, right, and it's all about pace and outrunning your your competitors. I just, it's, it's just so hard to, again, from an ethics standpoint, who's overseeing that and how can, how can they build a process that monitors all of that? I just, I I have a hard time, you know, picturing something like that would be working at like at a hundred percent. You know, there's always going to be like these fringe moments where someone's going to run an experiment and finds out that, oh, the needle that, that becomes a new feature or the new language that's used on, you know, the Facebook feed. And, you know, who's who's ultimately keeping track of all these experiments? I don't there's really not a governing body across these organizations that, that does that. So yeah. I, I can see why like over time, right, you know, the, the ethics piece is it definitely starts to blur and it's just super hard to for these types of organizations to like maintain and keep
0: track of. Yeah, right on. I mean, the ethics comment isn't a gotcha comment. It's a, it's a, wh- how hard would it really, how hard is it to do that? And it is really hard. And now she thanks so much for that comment. And I think it leads to the following discussion. Whenever I've talked about platforms, and I think everyone on this call, I've had a conversation about this idea of a platform. One of the design features or points or elements of defining a platform is building something that other organizations, other people, it, it, it's a place that they want to get engaged with, they want to participate in. What, what has happened here is the, not just the experimenters, but the policies and decisions have led to platforming where it's not really do you want to participate, you're compelled to. If you don't, then, then, you're, then you're destroyed. And that seems to be uh, another element here that it, it's probably an unintended consequence or or not but it's what came out for me of the discussions. We haven't said anything about Apple. I felt like Tim Cook, he, I mean, I saw a graphic that indicated he received maybe a third of the questions or half of the questions that Mark Zuckerberg received, I believe.
1: Well, um, I think Apple is interesting in the sense that nobody really wanted to to piss Apple off all that much, um, partially because I think that, that uh, the fact that Apple can build a factory in the U.S., and I bet lots of people would like to have that in their backyard. So I think that Apple had something to trade and that's something that, that was noted. The other side of it is the, the 30% of developer. You know, the 30%. But you know, I'm, I'm
0: sorry. I'm, I, I'm sorry, Christine, just before you jump forward, but Alphabet and Amazon are in the manufacturing business as well. I, I would challenge that.
1: To very small degrees not not similarly and not in the nature of of employing you know employing those people i think that the supply chains and the notion of the ability to truly influence and create a unique brand is something that is in fact more apellesc than among the others
4: i think that's true but i think that there's also a huge distribution arm with Amazon, which is why they're building so many distribution centers, which is a huge, huge thing for all these, all the politicians and the states also, right? To get a distribution center is a big deal. It's a lot of employment.
0: I think it's an important dynamic to keep in mind as these politicians are are looking down the barrel. Are, what, what are they doing to their chances of getting new jobs is what I think what you're saying in their in their districts? But, but I don't think Apple has a monopoly on it. So anyway, but it is important as consideration. Perhaps because Apple has the most popular products in the world, the scale is different. That probably makes sense. So, But I, I know I cut you off. What was your second point? A-
4: Apple right. just scored a four-to-one stock split, by the way. <laughs> and Amazon results came out today, and they, they doubled last year.
1: Yeah. Um, so Jeff Bezos so Jeff Bezos is no longer worth a. Nearly 180 billion. He's probably worth more than that. We talked about those jobs. Part of the challenge, and one of the things that I think was totally missing, was the aggregation of wealth conversation that should have happened um, amongst these guys. You know, Zuckerberg sitting at, you know, between 80, you know, 85 and 90 billion dollars. Facebook is more lean than Amazon and is Amazon's a heavier people business, but it also skews dramatically to the warehouse workers and the drivers and where that pressure is. One of the things that I think was totally missed in the hearing yesterday was this notion around, are they delivering a fair wage and does that matter? And I was very surprised that, um, Pramila Jayapal didn't go there.
4: I agree. She did say that she wanted to have more Apples and more Amazons and more of the same kind of companies to increase competition. And that was kind of her point was um, we need to not monopolize this. We need to open it up for more people to do the same kind of things. But, yeah, nobody nobody there yesterday hit on wages or treatment of employees or anything else.
1: Well, and William, you know, there are people who have managed to do wonders with these platforms, whether it's being on the Android or the iOS platforms or being a part of the Amazon community. There are people who have done remarkably well in creating their own little niches. Has that dramatically taken away from local small business? Part of that is we want the best price, but we are and we're willing to tolerate a a two or three day delay in getting an item and to have control over whether or not we're willing to defer receiving that item for a couple of days for a credit somewhere else in the Amazon platform. But we have not voted with our dollars to keep jobs in our local markets as well. Part of the challenge should be Amazon looking at more local-based programs. You're going to start to see different responses from these guys based on the level of scrutiny that they're, that they're going to have, and additionally, the non-U.S. scrutiny. The other thing that didn't come up here and was surprising to me was taxes and how much or how little these guys pay in tax because you know if you own one of these one of these four stocks you've probably done pretty well but the stock market rewards people who make money on their investments not necessarily who have worked for their their income so the those rewards have been missing from the population is there a means to provide less to investors and more to employees and how badly will the market punish them for that?
4: That's very true. I think
0: those are great questions. What we're all pointing out is, this is to be continued. So, Sue, so what, uh, how, how,
4: what, what's the takeaway? We'll
0: go around the around the room.
4: I think the major takeaway from me is there was no real progress. It'll be very interesting to see what the committee comes out with in their final report. They've spent well over a year on this. I don't think they got answers that moved the needle yesterday, and I don't see behavior changing for any of these folks. Awesome. Sharla?
3: I would agree whole I think that they had done their due diligence in getting at the documentation and preparing for it, but I don't think that they got very far. And whenever they did hit on a nerve, the executives would defer to providing information later.
0: Sounds good.
5: Now she. Yeah, I mean, I felt that uh, in his closing statement, the, the chair made of saying along the lines of the hearing has made it very clear that these companies are, today have monopoly power and need to be broken up and regulated. And I felt that along the lines of what uh, Sue and Charlie just mentioned, that I think one, the, these companies, I don't see them making much change uh, moving forward, at least in the near term from this. And then at the same time from the statement made by the chair that I felt like that they were going to say that regardless of what, what happened in this hearing anyway. And so it was, you know, I think really you said it early on, it was just almost like a theatrics thing. And you know, at, at the end, I, I felt like, this was just like more of like a formal thing that they did, but at least from the uh, committee side that their, their mind was pretty much set and you know, they're going to have that closing remark anyway.
0: Good one. Thank you. Christine.
1: I wanted, I wanted more out of it. I think that it was a good start to hold them accountable, but I think that, you know, we watched uh, a, a titan die recently and leave us with examples of things. And I'm gonna get a little bit, I'm gonna get a, a, a little bit off base before I bring it back around where we look at somebody like John Lewis who stood up for everything he believed in and in creating this notion of a moral obligation to stand up, speak up and speak out in his own words, that we have to be responsible and that we have to hold these guys accountable for creating the kind of companies and uh, communities that we want to see. And I think that we have begun to call them out. Now we need to make them accountable. And that's just me personally. But I think that we need to do some getting into good trouble and to take what he has said and take what we started with yesterday in Congress and begin to go after the conversations we really want to have about creating equitable and interesting incentives that drive growth and don't do so for just a few people, but do so for lots and lots of people in the United States.
0: So allow me to be the first to say... Christine Gonzalez-Worst will announce her campaign for Congress 2022 next week. Um, <laughs> let, me sum up, let, me sum, let me sum up what I heard. I heard that we, 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 feel, we feel that there's probably not a basis for action coming out of this, but we did feel a change in the preparation level, which is a good sign, right? They, they, we were just discussing real issues, and this wasn't a matter of un- unprepared questions being lobbied across in an unsophisticated way. It felt like scripted theater, more of this sort of U.S. political system setting up s- scenarios where we already know what the end result is. In fact, they finaled, the concluding remarks were probably scripted six months ago. We want more, and we feel like that it's a start, but more will happen. We felt there's a bit of a moral obligation to a broader set of stakeholders. I think it's really awesome stuff. I'll just say, because I don't think I need to, and this, these are fantastic comments. I think that this show's a maturation in the dialogue and a sort of a normalization of tech I, I hope it doesn't normalize out the magic of all the things we love in tech but but i think that that shift is a big deal thank you now sue christine charla and audience members thank you for listening this is our first uh, experiment with a uh, current event format drop us a note we'd love to know how you think we did empatheticmachines.org is our site to so go there or respond directly to the podcast wherever you found it. You probably found it on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks to Music for Makers for the Music, and thanks again for listening. Tally-ho!